Well, this morning we begin a new series, and our new series today is called Living by the Book. It is uh, Living by the Book, incidentally, is a book by Howard Hendricks, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And as you leave today, you'll receive a summer schedule here at Grace. And on Wednesdays at 6 p.m., I will be leading a study through that very book, Living by the Book, which will teach you how to study your Bibles. And, uh, and so I would uh, encourage you uh, uh, to participate in that on Wednesdays at 6 uh, p.m. Uh, also, um, we have... Uh, uh, we grow constantly here. There's so much we don't know. And, and we uh, recently, I think I may have shared this to, uh, with you, went down to Lake Forest Church. And uh, our staff spent quite a bit of time uh, in, in a day with the staff down there. And Dr., Dr. Moses, Mike Moses, the pastor, it was indeed a helpful time. And one of the things that we discovered is that in our thinking of discipleship, we have thought more destination and less direction. That discipleship is not getting to a place, it's going in a direction. And there's a, such a difference in that, and that's what yields this behind me. Uh, that we believe a disciple is someone who discovers and is discovering who Christ is, belonging to a small group of believers, serving uh, uh, the Lord uh, with uh, his or her uh, talents and gifts, and going and so certainly this series uh, will uh, focus on the discover part. I would say this, if you want to know Jesus like you've never known him before, you will have to read his word like you've never read it before. If you want to know Jesus like you've never known him before, you'll have to read his word like you've never read it before. In this passage, Jesus describes... A storm. Uh, the storm is the same. The houses are different. So it is one storm, two houses, two effects. In my years here of leading and pastoring and shepherding you, I've discovered that the storms that hit you really fall into these categories. And I've even counted them down from five. I made a list this week. Number five is work-related issues. Number four, grief. Number three, illness. Number two, children. And then the number one, most often, uh, counseling that I do is marriage. Uh, the difficulty of uh, marriage and, and, and working through issues that you face. Storms are real. The question isn't if, but when. I would also add this. Storms, and this is what Jesus is teaching here, do not determine who you are. They reveal who you are. Storms do not determine who you are. It's a bit late when the storm comes to figure out that you should have built your house on the other foundation. Storms reveal who you are. And so at the end of our time together, you will have the opportunity to respond to Christ in, in two primary ways. One, if you do not know him, you will understand by the time the sermon is over why that is so important. And secondly, if you're in a storm, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, two simple commands. 
Uh, and they are commands that come out of this passage. Hear and do and live. Hear and do and live. Secondly, hear and not do and die. Uh, that's what Jesus presents here. It's, it's not fancy. It's direct. It's honest. It's forthright. I want to pause and say something here that perhaps you've never thought about. Here at Grace, all our preaching is expository. That means we seek to expose the truths of Scripture. We do not begin with our own ideas and go looking for a passage that supports our opinions. We don't do that. We begin with Scripture, and whatever comes out, whatever emerges, uh, therein lies the power of the sermon, the power of the lesson, the power of God's Word is then uh, what informs us. There is a danger when you come here every Sunday and you hear the kind of preaching that we preach and you do not do it to become inoculated to it. There is this sense in which, yes, I heard it, so uh, it was good to hear it, and you go on your way and you forget what you've heard. And you do not do it. James, in his uh, five-chapter book, addresses that. And and it is certainly my desire that this not be the case with you. If you are new to grace, uh, you can disregard that comment. But if you come here a lot, uh, do not uh, ease into your seat and think, perhaps this is for someone down the row. Hear and do and live. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, uh, of mine, uh, that doesn't have to be in the sentence, so it's emphatic. Of mine, Jesus' words, what words? He has just finished preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he's done some things that, are, that, that will ultimately lead to his death. I think this is the beginning point with the Pharisees. If this is what he's going to preach, this guy has to be gone. And so what is it that he's preaching and what is it that enrages them? Here it is. You see, they're keepers of the law. Uh, I mean, to the nth degree, and they've added about 600 to the original. So they're keepers of it. But what he says to them is, I say to you, uh, or you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman uh, to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Wow. So he takes uh, lust and raises it to the level of adultery. I say to you, or you have heard it said, rather, do not murder. But I say to you that if you slander someone with your tongue, you've already committed murder. You're you're a fool. Uh, you're, You're speaking as one who calls one a fool. And you're worthy of hell itself, he says. What in the world is he getting at? Jesus ultimately raises the bar so high that no one can accomplish, no one can achieve. He is setting up the reality of the depravity of the human condition that we indeed are all sinners in need of a Savior. And that not even the Pharisees with all their additions to the rules can get it right. He says, if you hear my words and do them, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. This is a deadly storm. How do we know? The second house. 
The second house reveals to us this is a deadly storm because the second house is totally destroyed. This is life and death. This is not good and bad. This is not better and best. This is not good or great. This is life and death Jesus presents here. Monday, as I was working on this sermon, I took a break to grab a bite to eat. I go down Highway 70, and when I do, I see a couple of emergency vehicles headed uh, west. People pulling over to let them buy some construction work going on on the road, impeding their progress. Go a little bit further, here comes another emergency vehicle, high rate of speed. Here comes uh, the rescue squad with the ATV, high rate of speed, and I'm wondering what's going on. This all in my mind, I'm thinking, this could be life and death. That's how this is right here. You've got to understand that what Jesus presents here is, is not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It is truth. Why didn't the house fall? Because it had been founded on the rock. And that word founded means built on the foundation of or established. So what is the rock? Well, it's two things here and always. Number one, it's Jesus' words. The rock is Jesus' words. You say, well, how could it be something else? Because the rock is also Christ himself. So here's how. Jesus is as good as his word. He is as good as his word. So I imagine you joined the millions yesterday and, and watched perhaps the wedding, right? So perhaps you watched the wedding yesterday and, and saw all of the things and heard the words they said to, to one another, the the, the I do's and the I will's. But I can say to you as a married man, and many people who are married in this room, we never keep those promises perfectly. No, we have intent and we have accomplishment. And somewhere between an intent and accomplishment is where we all land. Uh, we, we never do it perfectly. We fail But Jesus' word is as good as he is. He is perfect. His word, therefore, is perfect. He keeps his word all the time, every time. So what he says is as good as he is. So if you build your house on him, by extension, you build your house on his words. You you build your house on his words. As a matter of fact, this was so amazing that verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished. They were like, who is this guy? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, how did their scribes teach? The scribes lived according to a principle that, that there was a golden age of wisdom many years before them. And they literally spent years studying the wisdom that came from this golden age. And when they taught, the best scribe was one who could best quote years old of wisdom. And Jesus looked at these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and tax collectors and sinners and common everyday people And taught himself as wisdom. Taught himself as life. Made bold, audacious claims about himself. History became his story. That's what he said. 
No, it's all about me. I read that recently. I think it was a C.S. Lewis quote where, 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 where you have to, no, it was a John Stott. John Stott said, if you're reading the Gospels, you realize that Jesus made bold, audacious claims about himself. He, he, he said, this is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life. This is why I say to my New Testament students, I can teach the Old Testament at Montreat, and people are like, yes, 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 and they'll go along, they love the stories, and we get to the new. And if I have any unbelieving students, which I always do, they get offended every single time. Every single time I'll hear utterings, I'll hear mutterings, I'll hear just responses, and then I give them opportunity, I engage them in that. I've I, I loved that they're sitting there in front of me. Why the offense with the new and not with the old? Because there's a Jesus in the new who makes some pretty amazing claims, and he's either a liar or he's a lunatic, Lewis said, or he's Lord. I mean, this is what he does. And here is one of them. Hear and do and live. Hear and not do and die. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Foolish. What does the word mean? It means just what it means. You look it up in the dictionary. You look it up in a Bible dictionary. You know, look at the Greek. It means a stupid person who does a stupid thing. That's a fool. A fool is a stupid person who does a stupid thing. And what is Jesus saying? It's stupid to build a house on sand. It just doesn't make any sense. But look at verse 27. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now, I use... So, so all through this series, I'm going to give you all the tools, just different tools. If you want to jot them down, if you want to amp up your Bible study. All right, so, so first of all, I read from a literal translation. All right, so there are three kinds of translations, or two kinds, and a paraphrase. And because somebody came up to me after the early service, and they said, my Bible missed this nuance that you shared. I said, well, tell me what you have. So uh, he, it was Greg, he's carrying a New Living Translation. All right, so a literal translation, that would be ESV, New American Standard, King James, New King James, word-for-word translations. Those are literal. Uh, They read a bit more awkwardly in English. All right, then you've got dynamic equivalent. Dynamic equivalent translations would be phrase-for-phrase, paragraph-for-paragraph, NIV, NLT. Those fall in that category, easier to read. Then you have paraphrases. They are not translations at all. If you read the message, Eugene Peterson is the author, right? It's a paraphrase. It's, it's the Bible in his own words. As a pastor, scholar, shepherd that he is, it's the Bible in his own words. All are useful. All are good. But, but as you amp up the seriousness of your study, I would have in my reading a literal translation. And I would read from it. Why? Because there are nuances. I want you to look at verse 25 and at verse 27. Because all of a sudden we see one tiny word that is different. And if Jesus is a wordsmith, which he was a perfect wordsmith, then he's doing this on purpose. So in verse 25, the storm beat on the first house. 
And in verse 27, the storm beat against the second house. So when I saw that, just in my ESV, I'm just reading through when I saw it, I went, okay, why are there two different words? And, and are there two different words in the original, or is this just a, you know, make an interest in on an interpreter's part? They should never do that. But let me look and see. So let me give you my second resource. All right, so when I teach hermeneutics, this is the resource we use. It's wonderful. It's a ministry. It's available to you. Blueletterbible.org. Blueletterbible.org. You could go to that resource, type in your reference, choose your translation. It will go to the interlinear Bible, to the Greek or the Hebrew, old or new. It'll go, and you can click on that word, and you can see, uh, since most of us are not Greek scholars, everything you want to see to help you study. It's a fantastic ministry, totally supported by uh, donors. So when I went, that's what I did. I went to look. Okay, this word and that word. What did I discover? Here's what I discovered. That the word beat against means to hit with a devastating blow. And when you go to blueletterbible.org and you find that word uh, against, beat against, and then it'll show you every other occurrence of that word in all the Bible. All right, so every other occurrence. So I look at every, I went through verse by verse, every meaning this week in my study. And do you know what beat against means every single time? To fall down. It means to fall down. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that if your house is built on the rock, the storm will beat on it, but not beat against it. Wow. Did you hear me? If your house is built on the rock, as Jesus tells the story, the storm will be on it, but it will not beat against it. If your house is built on the sand, it'll fall down. One tiny little word. Well, we know it's obvious that, that the one house stands and the other falls. I think what we miss is the reality that founded on Christ. There's no storm that will take you out. If you sit in here this morning, you say, Jerry, I'm facing the storm of my life. Well, first of all, I'll tell you, you're not. We're going to see where this goes, and it is the storm of your life. You're not there yet. But whatever your storm, I totally respect it. If your house is built on the rock of Christ, you'll stand. That's the promise of this. You will stand. You will not fall. You will not cave in. When the storm comes, and that's what Tyler was saying in the room on Friday evening, uh, Jerry, God's got me. He knew this was coming. He knew where I would be. He knew this situation. He said his doctor, he'll be in there for 28 days. His doctor will take him through a regimen. He said that little doctor looked at me and said, Tyler, I'm about to take you into hell and bring you out. On day 14, you'll wish you weren't alive. But I promise I'll bring you out. That's a storm. Expectant wife. That's a storm, isn't it? 
How is it that Tyler can lie there in that bed with all of the things hooked up to him and say, God's got me. The storm does not determine who you are. It only reveals who you are. This is what Jesus is teaching here. But herein lies the problem. And some of you are here, and I know because I talk to you. If you're a thinking person, you're saying to yourself, I know people who attend church, listen to the word, and they never do it. They don't. Their lives seem to be just fine. Everything seems to be good in their lives. They have money, lots of friends, great posts on Instagram and Facebook. Everything just seems to be wonderful. They travel to wonderful places and and things just seem great. What about them? Why do their lives seem so good? Well, we turn to the Old Testament for the answer to that. Listen. Wow. The psalmist said, I went into the sanctuary and then I discerned their end. 
So the question comes, because you see the storm imagery in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. It makes me wonder, when Jesus is telling this story, this illustration of the two houses, is he thinking of Psalm 73? Is it somewhere tucked away in the back of his mind? And then the other question is, what is the ultimate storm? Oh, Lord, when, Psalm 73, you rouse yourself. When does God rouse himself? I think therein lies the answer. D.A. Carson says the violent storm differentiates between the two buildings. And in the Old Testament, the storm serves as a symbol for God's judgment, especially God's final judgment. You may have not thought of Jesus as this way, but this is a threat from Jesus. This illustration is a threat. What is it? If you're built on the rock, the storm of God's judgment will beat on your house, but not beat it in. If you're built on the sand, the storm of God's judgment will beat against your house, and great will be the fall of it. Jerry, what do you mean? There is a judgment day coming. For all of us. And right now, honestly, it's probably hard to tell if you're walking down the street of life what's underneath the house you see. And the person who seems so good and has it all together and is living any way she wants and doing anything he wants seems just fine until the great judge judges That, Jesus is saying, is the ultimate storm. You see, he's talking to Pharisees who are so good at the outside, but failing miserably on the inside. One day you will be judged. I will be judged. One day we will all stand before Christ and be judged, not on just what we've done, but why we've done it. What will be terrific for some will be terrifying for others. That's the truth. You see, if you go back, that's another tip in reading your Bible is context. If you go back into, go to 713 and read on, there are four sets of twos. As Jesus finishes, master teacher, uh, books have been written and should have been on the Sermon on the Mount. Master sermon, but he closes with four sets of twos. There are two paths, he says, the narrow and the broad. Many will find the broad path, few will find the narrow. There are two trees, the healthy and the diseased one. One bears fruit, another doesn't. There are two claims. Those who said, Lord, look what we did in your name. Look how we cast out demons. Look at all the activity. And Jesus said, depart from me. I will never, never, I never knew you unless you say, Lord, Lord. We would translate that or paraphrase that. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Just as I am, we may say. And now two houses. Well, some of you may find this offensive. Is Jesus trying to scare people into heaven? D.A. Carson says yes. Carson, a brilliant scholar. Let me quote him. He says, if you're sleeping soundly in a house desperately threatened by rising floodwaters, 
You may thank me for pounding at your door to rouse you. At the very least, you are not likely to accuse me of frightening you into safety. Similarly, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount by honestly attempting to frighten men and women into the kingdom, into salvation. He goes on to say, you may not believe that a hell exists. In that case, you may dismiss Jesus as a liar or a fool. Alternatively, you may be so attached to your sin that even the threat of final and catastrophic judgment may not induce you to leave it. But you will be foolish indeed if you simply accuse Jesus of frightening you into the kingdom. The storm of God's ultimate judgment is coming. Please hear me. These are not my words. They are the words of Christ himself. You may be enjoying your sin today. You may be indulging your sin today. You may be playing the big game of pretend. You may be thinking, I've gone this long and I've gotten by with it. And people may be walking by the house of your life admiring it. But when the winds howl and when the waters rise and the rains fall of the judgment of God, your house will come crashing down. It may not happen in this life. Oh, I hope that it does. I hope that it does. Because indeed there would be hope for you. Because if you don't realize this until then, you're gone for eternity in hell. If you find that offensive, all I've done is to knock on your door while the floodwaters are rising and saying, get out. You're going to die if you don't. Hebrews 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are, here's the phrase, eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting for him. Are you? Are you? Are you eagerly waiting for him? We're going to sing a song about him. Would you bow your heads? Lord, these have been austere words. I, your servant, bow before you now knowing that apart from Christ crucified on the cross on which the foundation of my life by your grace is built the judgment would terrify me 
But Father, when you look at me that day and see your son, oh Jesus, I will perhaps then know how much indeed I am indebted to you. For the cross of Christ is the reason I'm alive. It has, nor will it ever lose its power for us. I pray for those who are pretending in houses on sand that they will have heard the knock at the door of their hearts and will run out of that house into safety in your arms. In Christ's name, I pray for those who are facing unbelievable storms. May they allow us to wrap our arms around them and pray and hold them in the storm. Remind them that the storm may be on their house, this storm and the storm of your judgment one day, but it will not beat against it. In Christ's name. Amen.